Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning. Father, we are thankful that we can be in your presence, just like Roy and Connie sang. Uh, there is no better place to be, Lord. And I just pray that you would take your word today and you know, let it do its work in each individual heart that is represented here and bear forth much fruit. We ask in your name, amen. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. Last week we saw the despicable rape of Tamar by her half-brother Amnon. This morning we're going to pick up the story and see what happens when David fails to discipline his son over this. I'd have to tell any of you parents what happens if you don't discipline your children. They can turn into mean little Billy. But in fairness to my poor parents, they weren't afraid to spank me. I think they just got tired of beating me and seeing no progress. And their motto eventually became, any Rottweiler can beat up a skunk, but is it really worth it? I think I eventually won the discipline war simply by attrition. But I wasn't nearly as bad as a boy named Robert. James Dobson shares this story. He writes, In the absence of parental leadership, some children become extremely obnoxious and defiant, especially in public places. Perhaps the best example was a 10-year-old boy named Robert who was a patient of my good friend, Dr. William Sloniker. Dr. Sloniker said his pediatric staff dreaded the days when Robert was scheduled for a visit. He literally attacked the office grabbing instruments and files and telephones. His passive mother could do little more than to shake her head in bewilderment. During one physical examination, Dr. Sloniker observed severe cavities in Robert's teeth, and he knew that the boy must be referred to a local dentist. But who would be given the honor? A referral like Robert's could mean the end of a professional friendship. Dr. Sloniker eventually decided to send him to an older dentist who reportedly understood children. The confrontation that follows now stands as one of the classic moments in the history of human conflict. Robert arrived at the dentist's office prepared for battle. Get in the chair, young man, said the doctor. Not a chance, said Robert. Son, I told you to get in that chair, and that's what I intend for you to do. Robert stared at his opponent for a moment and then replied, If you make me get in that chair, I will take off all my clothes. The dentist calmly said, Son, take them off. The boy forthwith removed his shirt, shoes, and socks, and then looked back up in defiance. All right, son, said the dentist. Now get in the chair. You didn't hear me, sputtered Robert. 
I said, if you make me get in that chair, I will take off all my clothes. Son, take them off, replied the good doctor. Robert proceeded to move his pants and his underwear, finally standing totally naked before the dentist and his assistant. Now, son, get in the chair. With nothing left to take off, and stunned that someone had actually called his bluff, Robert did as he was told and sat cooperatively through the entire procedure. When the cavities were drilled and filled, he was instructed to, to step from the chair. Give me my clothes now, said the boy. I'm sorry, replied the dentist. Tell your mother we're going to keep your clothes tonight, and she can pick them up tomorrow. Can you comprehend the shock Robert's mother received? When the door of the waiting room opened, and there stood her pink son, naked as the day that he was born. The room was filled with patients, but Robert and his mom walked past them and into the hall. They went down a public elevator and into the parking lot, ignoring the snickers of onlookers. Well, the next day, Robert's mother returned to retrieve his, retrieve his clothes and asked to have a word with the dentist. However, she didn't come to protest. These were her sentiments. You don't know how much I appreciate what happened here yesterday. You see, Robert has been blackmailing me about his clothes for years. Whenever we're in a public place such as a grocery store, he makes unreasonable demands on me. If I don't immediately buy him what he wants, he threatens to take off all his clothes. You are the first person who called his bluff, and the impact on Robert has been incredible. When I read that, I thought, that has to be an older story. Because if that happened today, Robert would have sued everybody and owned the dental clinic. Look at verse 18 with me. Now she had on a long sleeve garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long sleeve garment which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom her brother said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Her flowing garments signified her position. And her status as a virgin had been a problem for Amnon back in verse 2. But he has changed all of that. Her position as a daughter of the king should have made her safe. Sadly, Amnon had paid no regard to that either. Absalom takes one look at her, and he knows that she has been violated. But what does he mean when he tells Tamar not to take this thing to heart? I think what he's saying to her is, you had every right to be trusting of him in that environment. And so you are in no ways responsible for this thing that has been done to you. No one could have conceived that a brother would have done such a thing to his sister. Now Tamar may have said that she was going to tell the king what happened, but her brother suggested that she wait. Now, why would he tell her to wait? This is just conjecture, but perhaps because Absalom, Absalom's cunning brain was already at work on a scheme that would accomplish three purposes. Avenge Tamar, get rid of Amnon, and put himself next in line for the throne. 
The fact that Absalom has royal blood in his veins from both his father and mother may also have spurred him on in his egotistical quest for the kingdom. Verse 20 tells us that Tamar lived withdrawn from the company of others, hidden away in her brother's house. This will be the last that we see of Tamar in the Bible. What became of her through the violent events that were unleashed by what she suffered, we simply do not know. Her withdrawal from the community is reflected in her withdrawal from the biblical narrative. We just know she never fully recovered. Here's one of the saddest events in all of Scripture. As we are told in verse 20, she lived the rest of her life in desolation. All because one man wanted a few minutes of pleasure. Verse 21. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. David's reaction resembled the reaction to Nathan's story about the rich man and the poor man from a few weeks ago in that it made David absolutely furious. King David heard about the tragedy and became very angry, but he did nothing about it. He reminds us of old Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel who also failed to curb the wickedness of his sons. David is angry. His eldest son has raped his daughter, and he's understandably upset. Yet although David is very upset, he does nothing about it. How could this be? This is the same guy who killed Goliath with a stone. The answer, I believe, is very simple. He succumbed to what we can succumb to as well. You see, a few years earlier, David had given in to his own lust with Bathsheba and actually murdered her husband to cover his tracks. Therefore, he probably felt as though he didn't have any right to address Amnon's sin. The memory of his own sin may have shut his mouth. The Puritan Philip Brooks writes, A man who lives right and is right has more authority in his silence as others do in their speech. But David had neither, and so he just got angry but did nothing. But I want to say something this morning to kind of counterbalance that. We all fail in here, and probably every parent can look back on an episode in their past with shame and regret. But even that can be beneficial if you set your kids down and honestly explain to them the mistakes you made and the pain it caused and explain to them that you don't want them to suffer in the same ways that you had to suffer, and so you are warning them in humility and in love. Mom, Dad, listen carefully. This is Satan's favorite tactic to allow your kids to see movies they ought not to see and to listen to music they ought not to hear. You can almost hear him hiss. Who are you to tell your kids what to do? Think of all the sins that you commit every day. But he's wrong, because truth is truth regardless of who speaks it. If you are doing well, you will have great authority. But even if you didn't do well or aren't doing as well presently as you could or should, you are to still share the truth and say, this is the way that it works and this is what you must do. 
And so if a parent feels it would be hypocrisy to confront the sins in their children that they were once guilty of, that's all backwards. Right and wrong is determined by the word of God. It puts you in an authority structure under God in raising your children. And so the parents are under God's authority in matters of right and wrong and are his agents in the lives of their children. And therefore, you have the responsibility to enforce those standards as you raise your children. I urge you to never give up that ground. Verse 23. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? When Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Don't read too quickly over verse 23. It says it came about after two full years. For two years, nothing was done. Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother's house. Now what happened during those two years are passed over in silence precisely because nothing happened. That is, nothing significant happened. After two years, David's anger may have abated, but Absalom's hatred has been quietly burning. One man wrote, Revenge is a luscious fruit which you must leave to ripen. For two years, Absalom waited to avenge the, the rape of his sister, but when the time finally did come, he was ready to act on it. Absalom has ingeniously concocted an almost believable reason to have his other half-brother come to this feast. He was the crown prince. If David was unwilling to come, Absalom, which Absalom had banked on, then why not allow his eldest son to represent him? When he asked if David would permit his successor, Ammon, to attend the feast, the request seemed to, me, to make David a little apprehensive. But David knew that the crown prince often took his place at public functions that demanded a royal presence. So why couldn't Amnon represent the king at this feast? Furthermore, two years have passed since Amnon violated Tamar, and Absalom had not done anything against him. So surely all this has been forgotten. But to guarantee some kind of safety for Amnon, David went the extra mile and permitted all the adult king's sons to also attend the feast. Assuming that Absalom wouldn't dare attack Amnon with so many of his family members present. But during those two years, Absalom had perfected his plan and has made arrangements for his escape. Amnon had duped David into sending Tamar to him. Now Absalom has hoodwinked his father into sending Amnon to Belhazor. Do you see the progression over the past few weeks? David duped Uriah the Hittite, Amnon tricked Tamar, and now Absalom is going to deceive Amnon. I'm going to keep saying this until it is burned into our spirits. We will eventually reap what we sow. Verse 28. 
Absalom commanded his servant, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. I also want you to see the similarity between the murders of Amnon with the murder of Uriah the Hittite. First of all, both of their deaths were carefully planned. Secondly, both of their deaths were the means to an end. With Amnon, it was Absalom's desire for the throne, and with David, it was his desire for Bathsheba. And finally, both of their deaths were done by the hands of other people. Neither David nor Absalom actually did the deed. They both had their servants do it. Now, the words in verse 28, I think, are chilling. Absalom's calm purpose and calm authority is unnerving. He sounds like a hitman for the mafia right before they execute someone by saying, hey, this isn't personal, it's just business. He addressed his young man as though he was the commander of soldiers about to attack the enemy. And the command itself was supported by words of encouragement. And they sound strangely like God's own words of encouragement to his people when they would attack an enemy. This is the Lord speaking in Joshua 1.9. Listen to the similarity. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so Absalom finally gets his revenge on Amnon for the rape of Tamar. But will the revenge be worth it? Philip Yancey writes, The problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes an unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Yancey finishes by saying, Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded, and the escalator never stops and it never lets anyone off. The problem with revenge is that it never really solves any problems and eventually turns around and actually hurts the perpetrator. In taking revenge, wrote Francis Bacon, a man is but even with his enemy, but in passing it over, he is now superior. Now, that old slogan, don't get mad, get even, may satisfy some people, but it will never be pleasing to the Lord. The Christian way is the way of forgiveness and faith, trusting the Lord to work out everything for our good and his glory. But, if you do decide to go down that road, you will get even, as you will be bringing yourself down to the level of that other person, and so now both of you are the same. Congratulations, you are now even with them. Verse 29 tells us the king's sons each mounted his mule and fled. Maybe it's just me, but that seems like a very uncool way to escape. I think it would be hard to look strong and suave and sophisticated when you're riding a mule at full speed. Write that down. That's brilliant. <clears throat> you won't find any sight like that in a commentary. 
Verse 30, please. Now, it was while they were on the way that the report came to David, saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, tore his clothes, and lay on the ground, and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. Actually, as so often is the case, bad news travels fast. But the initial report is inaccurate. Not all of the king's sons are dead, just the one. But just as the book of James tells us, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We need to realize that sin has serious consequences. The older I get, the longer I live, the more that I've gone through, the greater I hate sin because I see what it does. I've watched the misery it has caused in my own life and the life of others. Sin brings about destruction and death, hurts and heartache. May God help us to listen to his word and follow his way lest we too find ourselves reaping the results for sin, for it is an ugly crop. We are warned in 2 Timothy to flee also youthful lust. Now this is not mystical and hard to understand. This is a very simple command. Youthful lust refers to the fact that the same lust that bugged you when you are young will plague you all of your days. The appetite of the flesh will always be there. However old you are this morning, this word applies to you. David, after all, was around 50 years old when he had this affair with Bathsheba. How do we then protect ourselves from this? The rest of that verse in Timothy gives us the answer. It says, But pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with them that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. So, flee youthful lust, and instead... Follow righteousness with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, run from the sin and run to the saints. Spend time with fellow believers. The way to overcome lust is to flee and then to follow. But it's not enough just to flee lust. We're then to be proactive and pursue the things of God. Now, I'm going to just be perfectly honest with you this morning. If you do give in to lust, you will have a little bit of pleasure, but it will be followed by a lifetime of pain. But if you flee lust, you will have a little bit of pain in denying yourself, but that will be followed by a lifetime of pleasure. It's our choice. Let's make the right one. Verse 32, Jonadab the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, responded, do not let my Lord suppose they have put to death all the young men. The king's sons for Amnon alone is dead. Because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, do not let my Lord the king take the report to heart, namely, all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was with the watchman raised his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, according to your servant's word, so it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Verses 30 through 36 are kind of a parenthesis. We move from Baal Hazor to Jerusalem and see the escaping princes from David's point of view. 
Before the guards on the wall could clearly see and observe the men riding furiously towards Jerusalem and recognize them as the king's sons, a messenger arrived from Absalom's house announcing that all the king's sons had been slain. So David tears his garment and falls to the ground in grief, no doubt blaming himself for allowing his sons to attend Absalom's feast. But I can hardly believe verse 32. Here comes Jonadab, the Eddie Haskell of the Old Testament. This is the exact same guy last week who gave Amnon the stellar advice that ended up getting him killed. And now he's talking to David like Jonadab had nothing at all to do with these events. What a creep. It just makes you want to slug a pagan for Jesus, doesn't it? And so now we are left with Amnon dead, Absalom on the run, and everybody else weeping. Now we can read this story, and on one hand, it doesn't relate. I think for many of us, we see the extreme story in chapter 13, and we just can't imagine ever going there. It just seems too extreme. Now some of you know full well what that story is like, because in a way, you have lived this. I mean, you've seen what kind of damage this fire can do. But for others of you, you read a story like that and just, well, it just seems that your fire is pretty safe. I mean, your problem with pornography or your little flirtation at the office, that's no big deal. Because, I mean, you're not caught up in anything like that. But you have to understand this morning, that is the nature of a fire. The nature of a fire is that it starts out small and it grows and grows until it consumes, devastates, and destroys. Verse 37, please. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahu, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out for Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, since he was dead. Absalom fled 80 miles northeast of the home of his maternal grandparents in Jeshur, where his grandfather Talmai was king. No doubt this safe haven had been previously arranged beforehand, and it's likely that Talmai would have enjoyed seeing his grandson become the next king of Israel. It says he stayed there for three years. And what happens after those three years will occupy the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. The statement, and the soul of King David longed to go forth into Absalom, has been given two different interpretations. It means either David wanted very much to see his son again, which is understandable, or that David planned to go after Absalom and deal with him, but his anger gradually died down. I prefer the first interpretation but feel free to be wrong if you choose a second. As we finish up this morning, before we begin to follow these con consequences in the weeks to come, let's pause and ask ourselves, why has this shocking story been included in the Bible? Since we have read it in the Bible, it is right for us to ask, why has God told us this story? But this is God's word, and all of God's word is profitable. Our question then is, of what profit is this story intended to give us? Well, at one level, I think it's very obvious. Unpleasant as it may be, 
look at this story and learn its lessons. Look at this particularly ugly example of what sin can do to people. Look at how deceptive temptation, and especially sexual temptation, can be. Look at how deaf Amnon was to reason in his determination to satisfy his sinful desire. Look at the misery that it brought to everyone. Look and learn. This is God's world, and we are God's creatures. And if we defy God's ways, terrible damage will be done to ourselves and to others. And one of the terrible consequences of human sinfulness is that we as humans are very bad at dealing with our sinfulness. For example, we rarely get vengeance right. Vengeance means a punishment that is inflicted in return for a wrong. Now in closing, without a doubt, the most famous family feud in American history was the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. The Hatfields and the McCoys were two families who lived on either side of a river named Tug Fork, which geographically represented the border of Kentucky and West Virginia. The McCoys lived on the Kentucky side, and the Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side. In 1878, Mr. McCoy accused Mr. Hatfield's family of slipping across Tug Fork and stealing one of his hogs. Now, hog stealing was a very serious offense back in those days, so Mr. McCoy took Mr. Hatfield to court. Unfortunately, he didn't have enough evidence to convince him. But after the trial was over, someone from the McCoy family became so moved with resentment that he shot and killed a juror who had sided with the Hatfields. Everything escalated after that. Another shooting transpired was left through McCoy's dead along with Mr. Hatfield's son. The fighting didn't end there, however. Those who supported each family along the border of Kentucky and West Virginia now joined into the fray. And the feud reached its peak during what was called the 1888 New Year's Night Massacre, where several of the Hatfields surrounded the McCoy's home and opened fire on the sleeping family. They then set the house on a fire in an effort to drive Randolph McCoy out into the open. He managed to slip out unnoticed and escape the fire, but his family wasn't so lucky. His two children were killed that night. When it was all said and done, the 11-year feud which lasted from 1880 to 1891 would consume two families and take the lives of dozens of people. And to think, it all began with a stolen pig. Like that, in our hands, vengeance becomes another expression of our own sinfulness, foolishness, and weakness. It is therefore very important for us to know what God says. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And Father, that's whose hands we want to leave vengeance in. We are no good at it, Father. Not only that, we don't know everything that is going on. Only you know all things, O oh God. And so let us put ourselves underneath your hand, knowing that you always do what is best for your children. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.